Welcome to the LGBT Consortium podcast. Consortium supports LGBT plus groups, organisations and projects across the UK so that LGBT communities in need have access to the best support possible. This podcast series will be taking a deeper dive into the issues that matter to the LGBT community and finding out more about our members and the work they do. Hi and welcome to the Consortium podcast. My name is Helen Bowie, my pronouns are she, her and I'm Head of Partnerships and Development at Consortium. And I'm really pleased today to uh, be speaking to Amelia Abraham. Amelia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, so my pronouns are she, they. Um, I am an author, a journalist, and uh, an editor sometimes. Um, And I've written two books, one's called Queer Intentions, A Personal Journey Through LGBTQ Plus Culture, and that came out in 2019. And then another book called We Can Do Better Than This, which is an anthology uh, on the future of LGBTQ plus rights, equality, safety, happiness, um, all of those things. And that came out last year, so 2021, and uh, it actually came out today in paperback. Fantastic. So I've read We Can Do Better Than This uh, when it came out in hardback last year and I absolutely loved it and I'm really excited to be able to have a chat with you about that and about the paperback release. But obviously that is uh, your most recent work and it comes after lots of other really interesting work that you've done and I just wondered if you wanted to talk a bit about your background and your writing and maybe how that inspired We Can Do Better Than This. Yeah, so when I started writing, I was freelancing and I was working at Vice as well at the time. Um, And I just started writing about LGBTQ plus issues because I really cared. Um, And I was also just writing about things I was seeing happen around me. Uh, So things like the commercialization of pride or the closure of gay bars that I loved, for instance. Um, or perhaps things like the rise of hate crime Um, and really just yeah writing about my life as well as the culture that I was interested in so I wrote a lot about you know queer books and film for instance Um, and then it kind of built up a large body of work through doing that for a couple of years and that's when I decided to write my first book because I could see connections between some of the things I was writing about this idea of the mainstreaming of queer culture. So uh, the idea that with increased acceptance, uh, we we can kind of become more of a part of mainstream society, you know, famous pop stars, for instance, um, who are queer, openly queer, or transgender models on the cover of magazines. Um, And these things are great and this level of visibility is great, but I was also wondering um, what are the downsides to this increased visibility? and who does it not include, for instance. So that was one of the things that I was exploring in the first book. Uh, The first book's a first person work of of reportage. So I go across the West to lots of different cities and in each city it's a kind of a different topic. So it starts at the first ever gay wedding in the UK. Um, And then there's a chapter where I go across Pride. So I go to three Prides in Europe and kind of compare and contrast them. And then, There's a chapter called Now You See Me, which is about trans visibility, and another chapter called Now You Don't, which is about the violence trans people uh, experience. And yeah, so I I guess that book was a real culmination of 
my interests and a lot of the articles I'd written over the years and then we can do better than this really felt like a kind of continuation of that work. That makes a lot of sense and I think I can see in we can do better than this how it would build on that type of work and how the opportunity to build on first person writing through an anthology that brings in so many different voices is something that's really engaging and really necessary. Something that really struck me is the variety of the contributors uh, within the book and how that really reflects diversity and intersectionality within LGBT plus communities. And that's really important. And I think it really adds something to the book that, that you don't necessarily always see. So I guess I am really interested in how those contributors were approached or found how that came to be the group of people it is and maybe if you just want to talk about who some of those people are as well that would be great. Yeah so we have a mixture of really quite well-known people for instance people like Ollie Alexander or Beth Ditto or Peppermint from Drag Race, um, Owen Jones for instance or Lady Phil who started UK Black Pride uh, and then we have some people that you might not have heard of, um, activists that I've met through the through the work I've done over the years um, from a variety of countries. So uh, somebody from Nigeria called Vincent Desmond, um, my friend Masrul Islam, who's um, a Bangladeshi LGBTQ plus activist, and also uh, another another friend, Letitia Opio, who's from. Uganda and she runs Queer Youth Uganda and the idea was to use the platform of these bigger or more well-known people um, to yeah I guess bring readers in and then people could discover the stories of these these incredible grassroots activists that they, they might, might not know about or, or issues that they might not know about um, and then on top of that there's also a lot of writers that uh, I really admire um, so people like Sean Fay or Juliet Jakes Kate Bornstein uh, or Nisha Dolan. So uh, yeah, I guess I wanted to include those people because I knew they'd do a really good, good job of, of writing their essays really beautifully. So it's a bit of a mixture in the end, but I suppose I was just kind of trying to hit on as many different people's sort of interests as possible and keep it broad, you know? So there are performers and pop stars, but there are also writers. Um, if you're really into queer literature, it might appeal to you in that sense. And then there's also these activists who have really been doing incredible work for such a long time. That's like, that's great. And I, I really recognize what you're saying about the platform of some of the bigger, more well-known names within it being a really great way to also offer a platform to some of the less well-known activists and really get their work out there. Like when I bought the book, I think it was the like the Juliet Jakes, Nisha Dolan type names that appealed, but actually some of the people that I hadn't heard of before were offering these perspectives that I really needed to read and I didn't even know that I needed to read them. Um, and I, I love that about it. And I think that's such a wonderful thing to be able to do. Was there much guidance given to the writers themselves about the types of things that they cover or was it a lot more guided by them and their interests? Um, well firstly thank you for saying that that's very nice and I'm so grateful that you read it. Um, yeah it was a bit of a mixture really some people had a really clear idea about what they wanted to write and so it felt really important to let them do that um, and to speak about what was 
what was sort of on their mind or in their heart, for instance. Um, and then with other people, perhaps I would suggest a topic and then we would kind of workshop it together. But I think it's a testament to the people that I asked that quite often if I would say, do you want to write about this? They would say, no, not really, but I'll write about it kind of like this. <laughs> a bit more, you know, um, for instance, Travis Alabanza's essay, um, I, I sort of said, do you want to write something about hate crime or safety, I think, and then Travis wrote this incredible essay um, called We're All Trans Now What?, which is really exploring where that, where that sort of deep-seated deep feeling of discomfort comes from in people mm. um, around trans and non-binary people and why, why, what causes this sort of violence and Travis kind of concludes that it's the transness in all of us. Um, it's this sort of proximity to transness that um, makes people you know, maybe feel scared or feel a sense of discomfort. Um, and I think I've heard that said about homophobia before, but I don't think I've really heard it said about transphobia or in a way that is so beautifully articulated. Um, so yeah, things like that would happen. Or, you know, I, I, I said to Lady Phil, would you like to write something about you know, founding UK Black Pride and Lady Phil said, mm. I'll write about the black women that inspired me and how black queer women should be centered in our movement. Um, so yeah, I sort of I, I sort of tried to suggest things, but people were far more imaginative and brilliant than um, the ideas I suggested. <laughs> yeah. I think that sounds like a really great process though. Are there other things that came out of it that maybe weren't what you expected that you've been like really impressed or influenced or affected by in the way that people have approached some of the topics? Yeah, there are two essays that stand out for me when you ask that. And one is by Levi Horde, who is a, an academic based in America, who is, only about 24, 25 years old, and honestly a genius. But Levi's essay is about uh, trans pregnancies and it kind of uses um, feminist science fiction to imagine what pregnancy could be like if we untethered it from gender. Mm. Um, and I find that essay to be really, really incredible because it kind of uses speculative fiction to imagine how, how things could be different and also talks about how sexism might be um, eradicated if we if we had a less gender view of pregnancy and how that could benefit cis women uh, mm. as well cis people as well as trans people um, and I always love anything that sort of um, makes a trans inclusive uh, or queer argument as well as a feminist argument at the same time because I think that's really important in these times we're living through and then I also love this essay by somebody called Andrew Gerza who is a Canadian disability activist who is iconic. So Andrew does a lot of work around dating and being uh, a queer disabled person and mm. often sort of quite taboo busting or, or quite out there, very honest and very, very happy to talk about sex very openly. And uh, I asked Andrew to write an essay and Andrew wrote about, uh, yeah, their dating life, um, and it's called 
happily ever after isn't accessible to me. And Andrew kind of describes this experience of going to gay bars and sometimes not even being able to get into the gay bar if they don't have a wheelchair mm -hmm. ramp, for instance, then talks about the sorts of discrimination that they've faced in gay bars. Um, and then also, I think online as well, um, you know, really nasty comments from people who, who think they can kind of hide behind a keyboard or or uh, anonymous some grinder for instance and then um, about something I didn't know and this is why it's one of the essays that sort of surprised me the most which is that if you are a disabled person living in the UK Canada or US and some other countries your disability benefits will be based on your um, household income and if you get married then you might not qualify for your disability benefits anymore because your partner's income will be accounted for um, and so really queer disabled people don't have true marriage equality at the moment and Andrew says I think all queer people should be boycotting marriage uh, until queer disabled people uh, have equal access um, which you know I remember someone at Penguin saying oh maybe that that's quite out there to boycott marriage and I thought well if that's how Andrew feels we've got to put it in because that's yeah. how Andrew feels um, so both of those essays were probably two of the most illuminating for me uh, and where I learned the most. Incredible. Um, really interesting that someone just sort of saying their reality could be suggested as being a bit out there or, you know, but also so familiar that queer people just telling their stories has often been viewed as being out there and I think that's why books like this are so important and um, in creating and editing the book were there particular things that you hoped would come out of it either for you know the community and communities across LGBT plus communities and the variety within them and also like society more widely did you have particular hopes or outcomes that you were looking for? Um, I suppose in the same way as with Queer Intentions, I wanted to create a kind of guidebook, something you could read and you'd get a really broad perspective, mm -hmm. a broad range of perspectives on queer life today. Uh, so I hope it does that. Um, you know, I, I think you might need some basic understanding of LGBT key plus issues in order to sort of access the book but um I hope you don't need too many so I therefore I hope it could be a kind of starter manual or a gift to uh, someone who considers himself an ally but wants to learn more um and I hope for people um who already know quite a bit there's a lot to discover there too uh which there was for me so I hope it's true for other people um yeah basically just a kind of a survey, um, the breadth was really important. And also this idea of what can we actually do? Um, you know, not every essay outlines really practical solutions because there are some issues where we're just at kind of nascent phase where we need to kind of consider them more or raise awareness. But there are, there are essays in the book that, that have really kind of practical action points um, mm. that people can take away. So there's one on, um, called Allyship Starts at Home by Riyadh Khalaf. Um, and that has almost a kind of to-do list if someone in your family comes out as um, trans or non-binary or gay or bisexual um, and things you can actually do to make them 
feel more kind of comfortable um, or loved. And then other essays are a bit more kind of ideological, abstract, I suppose. There's a bit of a mixture. <laughs> I think having a mixture like that is something that I really enjoyed and you touched on it. There are some things where the conversations are perhaps still so early or so ever-changing that to commit something to words in a book as you know a way forward is perhaps not where we are but maybe finding ways forward where that is possible opens up some of that space for those other areas where they're not quite there yet. Yeah and I think also just having some of these people saying what they're saying in itself is useful enough so you know I try not to read my own Goodreads reviews but I did once have a look <laughs> You know, someone was complaining about like how a couple of the essays didn't really have a material takeaway of something that the reader could do. Most, mm -hmm. a lot of them do, but some of them don't. And, you know, I guess an example that comes to mind there is the Brazilian pop star and drag queen uh, Pablo Vittar's essay, which talks about how homophobia won't end in Brazil, which is the country with the highest... Um, anti-LGBTQ plus murder rate in the world, uh, how homophobia and transphobia won't end there until there's a new government and how um, the government is kind of endorsing this and, um, and how there's kind of systemic corruption that enforces the cycle of, of hate. Um, you know, there's not an overnight, it's not something we can all go out and do tomorrow to sort of oust Bolsonaro. However, I think Pablo Vittar is someone with such a huge platform and so many uh, sort of fans saying that is, is making a stand in itself, or I hope it is. And I hope that it makes a lot of people aware of the violence that's going on that might not have been aware before. Yeah, definitely. I've got a question which is maybe a little bit um, out there. As out there is a phrase that we've already used. Um, but something that I'm really curious about. So I bought the book last year and it came out in hardback and it's out in paperback now, which is at the point of recording, the 26th of May 2022. Um, and obviously, even before the first release of it, a lot of time and work would have gone into it. So it would have taken, you know, a long period of time from inception to now. And over that time, have there been changes to the landscape for queer communities where there are things that you would love to include that maybe seem like growing issues or newer issues just within that period of time? Yeah, definitely. I don't think that's an out there question. I think <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, I would say that even to start with, there are some issues that I would have liked to include in the book that I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, or I would have liked to focus on certain topics more. But it is quite a fiddly jigsaw puzzle putting together an anthology in a way, because as we talked about before, you do have to let people write about what they want to write about. And you can't ask someone to contribute and say, you have to write about this because no one else is. You know, that's not really empowering people's creativity or empowering them to say what they want to say. Um, so for instance, would I have liked an essay about same-sex parenting um, or queer women's access to IVF, like, yeah, maybe. 
um that would have been great but uh, you know we sort of no run out of space and time and <laughs> you can plan <laughs> you can plan things to some extent but um you, you can't encompass everything there are so many topics that I think are important right now and one book can definitely can't do everything um and then yeah since then it's interesting for the paperback we did have to update the introduction a little bit and it was really quite a horrible task because in the years since the book's been published we, we now know that um you know, hate crime uh, spikes during the pandemic anti-LGBTQ plus hate crime in the UK uh, and then also that 2021 was the worst year on record um, for anti-trans hate murders in America um, mm. so we we had to include those statistics in the new introduction um, there's also been uh, around I think about um we'll say about like 80 to 100 new laws attemptedly passed in America specifically targeting uh, trans athletes. Um, and I wrote my essay about uh, trans inclusion in, in sports and beyond as well. Mm -hmm. um, it was called, um, if, it's, if It's Broken, Fix It. And it was about how binary systems don't actually reflect the world that we live in um so with yeah with all the kind of anti-trans bills that that are currently going on in america it, it we did have to some update some of the essays to reflect mm -hmm. that um so that was that was quite a sobering process yeah fox fisher's essay which is about trans healthcare, um also required an update because of um the attempt to ban uh under 60s access to puberty blockers without parental consent in the UK, um, which has now been overturned. So we kind of had to add all these things in. So yeah, yeah. Things, have things have definitely changed um, and not necessarily in positive ways. No, and it is a really sad reality that a lot of those updates are updates to reflect situations which are getting more challenging rather than less. Yeah, um, and another interesting change, just in one of the writer's personal lives is that Sasha, Kadant Seva, who's uh, a Russian lesbian activist uh, who wrote an essay about queer sex education in the book, um, has now had to leave Russia because of her anti-war protesting. And, mm. and I think that uh, it's be become very difficult for her to do her work um, because, because she's sort of been displaced um, yeah. as a part of Ukrainian LGBTQ plus people um, since the war started so yeah things have changed but we're not we're not in a full lockdown anymore as we were when I edited the book so that's good I guess <laughs> yeah that is good I mean that was going to be my next question if it's not too much of a like Pollyanna question is like but are there things where it is getting better <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah let's talk about Heartstopper let's talk little... about Heartstopper <laughs> The ray of positivity in all of our queer lives and you know non-queer lives it's been so lovely to watch that um I'm quite a cynical jaded person but I just loved it and sobbed all the way through and it made me feel really hopeful um so that was nice so you know maybe that's a really good example of a great piece of representation um that might have got a mention in in the chapter that was that was more about um yeah representation in the book so that, that would be that, that's a positive it is and it's been so like 
lovely and bittersweet seeing people talking about how they wish they'd had Heartstopper when they were at school and how there are people at school now who do have Heartstopper and it's you know maybe it's like a really small piece of progress but it is progress and yeah yeah I don't know you know I don't know how much it actually reflects the experiences of people at school today I mean it's not all sunshine and rainbows in the series that like obviously some people do experience you know it alludes to things like bullying yeah. um, but overall it doesn't show it too much and I think that's good it's not kind of re-traumatizing queer people by constantly depicting um prejudice so I think in a way it almost kind of manifests what we want school to be more like yeah and even even if it's a gilded version of reality the very fact that it exists and people can see something positive in terms of representation I think is a step forward on where we have been for a while so yeah definitely definitely and there's a few films about to come out that are very mainstream gay rom-coms um there's one called fire island i forget the name of the other one but i do think representation continues to um evolve in quite quite positive ways yeah definitely i'm really into this sort of thing and i've spent a lot of time like really clawing around to find representation where there probably isn't any but you find a tiny bit of something in a film and you hook onto it and I feel like yeah. a world where people younger than me are actually seeing real representation and not having to read between lines and make up their own stories is is lovely yeah I mean we did have to do that didn't we um or I remember seeking out queer films and people always died at the end they were quite nihilistic um and now I suppose if you're younger you can just go on Netflix and you have this whole menu of LGBTQ plus content to watch. Um, or, you know, you have TikTok where there's endless LGBTQ plus content. Yeah. So that's good. <laughs> that is good, it is good. And I think it's important to remember that there are some good things, if anything, just to keep enough hope to have the energy to fight the bad things sometimes. Exactly, yeah. Um, I've just got a couple more questions um, just to wrap up, really. So I suppose my first one would be, what plans do you have going forward after, after this book? Have you got anything on the horizon <laughs> that you want to talk about? Um, they're all kind of quite anguished projects, so... <laughs> <laughs> I am slowly working on a novel, whether it will ever come out, we don't know. Um, and I'm slowly working on a TV script, whether we ever it will come out, we don't know. Um, but there will be things eventually, I suppose. <laughs> they'll, have to, they'll have to be. Um, and there's another non-fiction book that I would like to write. Um, so one of them may materialise in the next year or two, we hope. Yeah, <laughs> good luck. I, mean, I would love that. I would love to see that show or read that novel or read that nonfiction book. <laughs> um, I, I have been um, more in the short term, more recently been write, writing an article, which I've really enjoyed doing, which is for The Guardian that's coming out soon, um, which is interviewing the original group of people who uh, put together the first Pride in Britain in 1972 and it's a kind of oral history of that day 
um, which I haven't seen done before. And they've just been amazing. All their stories have been incredible. So that is a, that is the thing that's happening for sure. That sounds amazing. Yeah, fantastic. They're all in their 70s and 80s now, but they've got absolutely incredible memories. Um, really clear, amazing memories of the day. So um, I guess you would remember the first Pride if you were there. Yeah, that's that's something to remember, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, although a lot of them said they didn't know then that it would be as big as it is now because the GLF who organised it, the Gay Liberation Front, was so busy going to protest every week and putting on dances and parties in the park and all this stuff that Pride, some of them said, oh, it just felt like another, any other protest or any other day that we were doing stuff. So that's kind of amazing. But yeah, obviously uh, it's grown into something much bigger. Yeah, that is amazing to think that during the first Pride, people were just like, yeah, this is just, just one protest, just one day. And then look at everything that's happened since. That's beautiful. Um, and then my last question for you is just, do you want to let us know where you can buy the book and if there's any other work of yours that you'd like to promote then please do oh thank you I mean yeah you can buy the we can do better than this paperback at most bookshops I hope I'm um, gaze the word which is an lgbtq plus bookshop is a great place to buy it from or waterstones um or your local independent bookshop I suppose um, and the same for queer intentions I hope they still have some copies looking about they should do Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amelia. This has been really, really lovely and so interesting. Um, so thank you again for your time and for creating such a brilliant book. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the LGBT Consortium podcast. You can find more about what we do from our website, consortium.lgbt, and on social media at LGBT Consortium Everywhere. Thank you.